Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, uh, we're going to be talking with a friend of the podcast, somebody who's been on a couple of times, um, Aaron Haspel, and we're going to be talking about the iconic American movie, Dirty Harry, uh, Clint Eastwood's uh, famous classic movie. It's a movie that has been talked about a great deal in the last few years, and especially, uh, especially in the last year. Uh, because it feels as if it could have been made yesterday. Any, welcome, Aaron. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. So why don't you uh, sort of tell us, uh, tell our listeners, um, you're a massive movie buff, movie critic. Uh, what is your, maybe a brief rundown for those people who've been living under a rock somewhere and they haven't seen Dirty Harry, what, the movie, what, movie? The, movie, yeah, what the movie is about? I suppose there must be people in the world who still haven't seen Dirty Harry, but for those people, the plot is actually quite simple. Uh, You have a detective in San Francisco named Harry Callahan, and why he's called Dirty Harry is something we'll get into later. It's both a running joke and a sort of interesting life motif in the movie. But essentially, he is an utterly committed and single-minded cop, There is a killer loose in San Francisco. It is Dirty Harry's job. It is really the police force's job to uh, to apprehend that killer. And the movie essentially details the methods that he takes to apprehend that killer. And it deals largely with the essential abdication of the San Francisco police. They leave Harry to do the job himself. And at the end, he does the job himself to my great satisfaction. And I dare say to the satisfaction of the audience as well. Okay. And I mean, it's just interesting how often this movie comes up again and again. Like I was just sort of going through a list uh, with a friend of mine today of all the times that we've heard the movie referenced uh, in our lifetime, right? So I, I remember there was the these two biker gangs here in uh, in Quebec, the uh, Hell's Angels and the Rock Machine, and they basically they had a war, which uh, 
resulted in like a lot of people getting killed. Uh, suddenly, um, Montreal went from being a very safe place where almost nobody, there were almost no murders. There's very little like violence here to we, the stuff that we saw in American movies was suddenly happening in Montreal. Like there were people getting shot in the middle of in drive-by shootings and uh, mm -hmm. stuff that looked like it was out of, you know, the Godfather movies, like going into a restaurant and uh, shooting somebody 30 times and, you know, at rush hour, like kind of, and anyway, and, uh, uh, the police, the after they were sort of killing each other back and forth, and then they planted a bomb inside this van uh, to kill, you know, another biker, and it went off, and it accidentally killed this kid. Uh, this young boy oh was, uh, and and at that point, the the government had an emergency meeting at like in the middle of the night. And they basically suspended all civil liberties for anybody who was um, a member of a biker gang. And they said, uh, you know, you are like, they just, they had like no more civil liberties. And they specifically said, we're going to get Dirty Harry on them. Right? They said that can they, you know. Just, just on grounds of being a member of a biker gang, you don't actually have to do anything. You just have to be a member um, of a motorcycle they said anybody gang. Anybody who's a known member and... What they did is they started, there were a lot of bikers that lived in my neighborhood, actually, of Verdun, and they would go, this was the middle of the winter, they would go to their houses and just like raid, like knock down their door, smash down their door, uh, take all their furniture and stuff and throw all of it uh, at, at, in the middle of the street, in the snow, uh, in the middle, you know, it's like 20 below outside. And then uh, they would say, oh, we were just looking for something. It was just outright police harassment. Uh, and they were doing mm -hmm. this to all of their businesses and their homes. And the message that they were trying to send was, uh, there's an unspoken agreement that you guys run the drug trade. And, uh, you know, we know that it's going to exist. And uh, we'd rather have middle-aged men running it than, you know, testosterone punt teenage boys running it. So we'd rather mm -hmm. have it, you know, rationally maintained than, uh, uh, but right now you are doing precisely what we don't want. And you, and they were just making them pay for uh, this, this civilian being killed, this, this kid. And they were making, and, and the, you know, to their credit, the bikers completely took it. You know, they were like, yeah, okay. <laughs> we totally had that coming. Uh, but they used, they said, you know, they said completely, uh, we're going dirty Harry on them. Right. And anyway, we just want well, to find all these examples. Because, you know, what's 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 interesting is that the story you tell involves both police corruption and excessive force by the police, neither of which is present in Dirty Harry. In fact, exactly the opposite. There's no police corruption in Dirty Harry whatsoever, not at the top level, not at the lower level. It just does not figure into the movie. And it's sort of ironic because when you call a cop dirty, usually what you mean is that he's corrupt. Yes. You mean he's on the take. Yeah. And yet Dirty Harry is the opposite. It doesn't refer to his corruption at all. There's some question what it does refer to, because one of the amusing things about the movie is that although it's titled Dirty Harry, nobody in the movie calls him Dirty Harry. <laughs> Not behind his back. And certainly not to his face.
Yeah, well, the, right. actually, well, no, his new, a, his new it, partner, it, it, the it, Mexican it, partner. It's a running joke with his partner, Chico, because Chico is trying to figure out why he's called Dirty Harry. And there are various permutations of it. At the beginning, when they're chasing someone who looks like the suspect, Scorpio the killer, but turns out to be just an innocent man, and he winds up at a window, okay, you know, looking at a uh, half-naked woman. Then she goes, says, ah, I see why they call you Dirty Harry. But then later on, <laughs> when he rescues a suicide, okay, off the top of the, uh, off the top of a building, goes up in a big police crane and has to punch him in the face to knock him unconscious so he doesn't struggle on the way down. Then Eastwood explains, yes, that's why they call me Dirty Harry. Every dirty job. And this goes on and on as a sort of leitmotif in the movie. But it's ironic that Dirty should be the nickname of a cop who, at least in the usual respect of Dirty, is completely clean. Okay. And, um, you know, you pointed when we were talking about this, this movie a little while ago, you said, well, you really have to go back and read the, uh, that, you know, the review of it by Pauline... Uh, kale uh and so oh, i went yeah, and, I've, Pauline, I, yeah, yes. and I've, well, I've 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 read it i went back and read it uh, a number of times and it's uh saint cop it, right saint cop so yeah, notorious which, notorious review in the new yorker which now i like pauline trashy, trashy, and i've learned a lot uh, from pauline what's that john yeah no she trashes the movie so oh she does yeah she does but at the same time, you can see a couple of things about it. One interesting thing about it, and Renata Adler pointed this out in her takedown of Pauline Kale better than I ever could, is that, you know, she's obviously extremely sexually attracted to Eastwood. And uh, there are some rather heavy breathing passages in this review. Let me see if I can find one. Uh, he's soft-spoken Clint Eastwood, six feet four of lean, tough saint. Blue-eyed and shaggy-haired, with a rugged, creased, careworn face that occasionally breaks into a mischief-filled Shirley MacLaine grin. I don't know if Shirley MacLaine is very appropriate here, but you can certainly see the import of this passage. It's fairly <laughs> obvious. Yeah. Yeah, she did. There's definitely, uh, yeah, she's, there's something going on there. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's yeah. funny. There's, there's, there's definitely something going on there. All right. so, well, but but maybe but, she's just maybe she's just sort of uh, you know plays sort of devil's advocate. Maybe she's just kind of throwing him a bone, you know, the way that you like if you think a a book is really bad, you maybe praise the writing or something, or <laughs> like you, you know, you, you find well, some, think, something nice to she, say about it. She she doesn't think the movie is bad. In fact, she says in the review that the movie is brilliantly made. And that anyone who denies that would be a fool. Yeah, yes, but she also says what that she, uh, what she that it's a genre to about piece. the movie is not the fact that it's a bad movie. There are plenty of bad movies in the world, but Dirty Harry is not one of them. Dirty Harry is eminently watchable. Okay, you can watch it over and over, and there's plenty that you can get from it. What she objects to about the movie is not that it's a bad movie or that it's badly made or anything like that. Her objection to the movie is what she perceives as its political and moral import. Okay. And what is she thinks the political the movie and moral? Is highly effective propaganda for the wrong team. Yeah. 
I mean, this movie, you know, when we were watching it the other night, um, you know, that, that opening bit, you know, where it begins the, the opening scene and you're, you're looking at it says like, uh, in tribute, you see this memorial plaque and it says in tribute to the police officers. Right. It's scrolled San down the memorial and you see all the, San Fr- the names the of all line. the San Francisco police yeah. officers who've been killed in the line of duty. Right. Right. Yeah. And it just, and it, it, it almost like, you almost feel like the subtitle of the movie should be blue lives matter. You know, it's a, uh, it's a very sort of kind of, it, it almost seems like a response to the black lives matter movie uh, movement that was, you know, came out as a movie 50 years ago. <laughs> it's, it's very. I suppose you could regard it that way. And that's certainly one motif of the movie it's maybe the most obvious motif and it's not just at the beginning later on scorpio does in fact kill a cop mm-hmm. yeah no that's uh, that's very true so, I, yeah i was asking uh, one of my colleagues who teaches in the, the police tech program at john abbott college uh you know what do you think about uh jody harry and he just like shook his head and he goes that is just uh, one of one of a bunch of movies. He, he mentioned a few others. Uh, Colors, you know the Sean Penn movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colors, yeah. where he's fighting fighting the Crips and the Bloods, the the gangs in L.A. and stuff like that. He said there's a, a, right. a bunch of movies where um, you just if you t- if you are like he's a retired police officer who teaches future police officers now, and he said there's a number of movies right. where you just cringe because they attract the worst possible people to your program. And so you spend the first year of the police tech program trying to weed out the people who uh, decided they wanted to be a cop because they wanted to be uh, Dirty Harry or they wanted to be Sean Penn in colors or they wanted to be... Because uh, this is the kind of person who's just going to be uh, a disaster, like a huge liability to the city, they're going to end up costing the city $10 million in lawsuits. They're going to, you know, ruin uh, really good cases against criminals by, you know, you know, going around the law and things like that. And so you just, uh, he's like, I can't stand that movie. And he goes, you know, I don't, he also said, I don't like that opening um, scene where it says, you know, in tribute uh, to the police officers of San Francisco who gave their lives in the line of duty, because he goes, that just, feeds into this uh, really bad, toxic idea that is uh, put forward by police unions and by, uh, you know, right-wingers and stuff like that, that somehow being a cop is a really dangerous job. He's like, it's not. He said, actually, if you look at the list of the most dangerous jobs, there's lots of jobs that are way, way more dangerous. Like being a firefighter is many, many times more dangerous than being a police officer. Being a uh, being like an EMT is more dangerous than being a police officer. Being a lumberjack, being working in a, being a working in the fishery industry, way more dangerous. Mining, way more. <laughs> like he just said, all these different jobs are way more dangerous than being uh, being a veterinarian is actually more dangerous uh, than being a police officer. So it feeds there into this. There are certainly jobs that are considerably more dangerous than being a police officer. On the other hand, the vast majority of jobs are considerably less dangerous than being a police officer. I'm a computer programmer by profession. That is a much less dangerous job than being a police officer. 
You're a college professor by profession. That yeah. too is a far less dangerous job than being a police officer. Yes, except for the, 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 the fact odd is time there when a is physical risk involved one. in being a police officer. And Absolutely. although there are a few jobs in which there is more physical risk, the fact mm-hmm. that there is physical risk and that you are constantly, especially if you're a street policeman, dealing with people who are armed and dangerous and, you know, borderline in many ways, you know, if it is not that dangerous, and actually it's funny if you scroll through, as you scroll through the list at the beginning of Dirty Harry, you see that there really aren't that many officers who were killed. It was along the lines of four or five a year. You see one year and another year and then another year it doesn't go on and on forever it's not like the tomb of the unknown soldier or arlington cemetery (laughs) or something like that where there are crosses as far as the eye can see there aren't really that many but yeah, yeah i mean that opening is supposed to put you in the proper frame of mind of you know respect for the police and what they do and i don't see anything terribly wrong with that I think what your friend says about Dirty Harry, like most things people say about Dirty Harry, is half true. Okay. It is true that the movie lionizes Callahan, and Callahan as an officer is a bit of a loose cannon, to say the least, although as we go on, we'll go through exactly what he does and what's justified and what's not justified and how justified it is. But at the same time, that movie is an indictment of the police. And it is really the first indictment of the police. It became the, it it was influential largely, well, obviously because of the character of a Callahan, but also influential largely because it was the first movie in which a cop, as opposed to someone outside the police bureaucracy, became the lone crusader against criminality. Mm-hmm. There used to be lots of there used to be lots of movies like that where you would have one particular person who was especially clever and had a disregard for normal police procedure and would go and solve the crime and sometimes apprehend the criminal. But before Dirty Harry, that was never a cop. That was always a private investigator or somebody like that. It was Mike yeah. Hammer yeah, or Nick and Nora Charles or Sam Spade or someone along those lines or Lou Harper, all of these people. And there was a long tradition of that. But Dirty Harry was the first movie in which that cop was part of the in which that person was actually a cop and was part of the police bureaucracy. And that's yeah. what made it so influential. And there are a great many movies that follow, you know, in that template were big hits. 48 Hours is one, Beverly Hills Cop was another, Running Scared. There are all kinds of them. Yeah, and all the, all the Steven fact, Seagal in fact, movies, in fact, right? What's that? All the Steven all the Seagal, Seagal movies, yeah. Yeah, where he's like above the law and he's, a, he's like a leg breaker cop who actually gets things done. Uh, by, but he right. does it by going around all of the, the rules. Right, right. Exactly. The idea is that not the hero in these movies has not one enemy, but two. All right. His bosses are one and the criminal is another. 
and he has to fight them both in order to get what he wants in the end. And this has been a very successful template for police movies, and Dirty Harry was the original of that template. And yeah, I'm and quite sure would, that this yeah. template will last a long time, and it will, it will outlive both of us, John. I have no question about that. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the time in the sort of the Serpico genre or the uh, Mississippi burning genre, like, you have this idea that there's either there's a a corrupt system, a corrupt like police force, and then you have like the lone good person who's standing up against the corrupt system, right? Or you have the uh, the sort of the Jason Bourne movies, like the where it's um, let's say the system as a whole, like the CIA as a whole, is is virtuous and good, but you have some bad apples that are doing all these these sneaky things on the side and and so you ferret those things out and you redeem the virtue of the uh, the organization there's, there's a bunch of different genres what what when i f- saw dirty harry the first thing that struck me about it is that it almost seems like one of those like art films from eastern europe or even like that robert de niro movie uh, brazil you know where it's mm-hmm. it's it's totally different it's like it's not the problem. Is not necessarily uh, corruption of individuals or corruption of the institution. It's that uh, the institution itself is is fucking insane. Like it's just not. Well, uh, it, it, it's, it's not. I, I don't know if I would use the word insane, but corruption is certainly not the issue here, as it is in the Sidney Lumet cop movies like Serpico or Prince of the City or something, or people with their own hidden agendas, as you often see in the CIA conspiracy movies. I think the classic of that type is uh, probably uh, Seven Days of the Condor, or Three Days of the Condor, if you've, uh, if you've ever seen that with, uh, with, with, with Redford and Dunaway. Uh, all right, what you have there is you have a sort of rogue operators within the system who are destroying the whole system. And what's funny is that, in a way, the sequel the first sequel to dirty harry magnum force is exactly along those lines okay magnum force is much more like the cia conspiracy movies in which you have this sort of rogue sub-organization that's operating within the organization yeah i watched that's not what dirty harry is at all it's a different thing entirely yeah it was totally different and yes you have and there's one wonderful line uh when they Basically, it was. It almost reminded me of of the Hitchcock movie Rope, you know, where the uh, mm-hmm. where the the students confront their their prof- their philosophy professor who's been teaching them like Nietzsche and like will to power and all this stuff, and they're like, "Oh, we thought we were doing what you like," and that look of complete horror in his face when he realizes like how much his students, you know, Leopold and Loeb <laughs> have misunderstood right, right, him, right? right? It, and it, it's, 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 very, it's very true, the relationship between Jimmy Stewart and the Leopold and Loeb characters, I think uh, Farley Granger, and I forget who the other actor is, uh, is very similar to the relationship between Eastwood and the rogue, uh, the rogue cops in uh, Magnum Force. Absolutely. Yeah. And, they, and, and they Megan come Ford to him in some ways be regarded as like a it. sort of. 
What's that? Expects him to be appreciative, and and he says you misunderstood me completely. They think they're they think they're following in his footsteps. Yeah, doing the Lord's work. Right, right, and in some ways, Magnum Force is a sort of apology for Dirty Harry. Although it was written by the same guy, John Milius, who's kind of an interesting character in his own right. Milius is not credited on Dirty Harry, but he is supposed to have written a lot of it, including the famous uh, Do You Feel Lucky Punk speech. Yeah. So what do you think is really going on? What do you think is really going on um, in uh, in this? Because I know you have a very interesting take on... I, maybe you've, I read your essay that you wrote on Dirty Harry, and maybe you've, you've distanced right. yourself from it, but, but what is your take on what's really going on in Dirty Harry? Well, let's take on the criticism of Dirty Harry straight away, and I think this is best exemplified by Pauline Kael's review. So I'll just quote from her review, and I think this summarizes a lot of liberal reaction to Dirty Harry at the time, and it also summarizes a lot of the reaction that you see to Dirty Harry today. And here's what Pauline Kael writes. She says, Dirty Harry is a kind of hard hat the fountainhead. Callahan, a free individual, afraid of no one and bowing to no man, is pitted against a hippie maniac loosely based on San Francisco's Zodiac Killer, who is a compendium of criminal types. The variety of his perversions is impressive. One might say that no depravity is foreign to him. He is pure evil. Sniper, rapist, kidnapper, torturer, defiler of all human values. Paradisiacal San Francisco supports this vision. In New York, where crime is so obviously a social outgrowth, the dregs belong to the city, and a criminal could not be viewed as a snake in paradise. But as everyone knows, the San Francisco light and, and the beauty of the natural setting transform and unify the architectural chaos. Even poverty looks picturesque, as in other tourist traps, and crime can be treated as a defiler from outside the society. This criminal is not one for whom we need feel any responsibility or sympathy, yet he stands for everything the audience fears and loathes. And Harry cannot destroy this walking rot because of the legal protections, such as the court rulings on Miranda and Escobedo, that a weak liberal society gives its criminals. Those are the terms of the film. The dirtiness on Harry is the moral stain of recognition that evil must be dealt with. He is our martyr stain, our martyr stained on our behalf. The content fits the form and beautifully, hand in glove. In the action genre, it's easier and more fun to treat crime in this medieval way as evil without specific causes or background. What produces a killer might be a subject for an artist, but it's a nuisance to an exciter who doesn't want to slow the action down. When you're making a picture with Clint Eastwood, you naturally want things to be simple, and the basic contest between good and evil is as simple as you can get. It makes this genre piece more archetypal than most movies, more primitive and dreamlike. Fascist medievalism has a fairy tale appeal. Fascist medievalism. All right. So this is what Pauline Kael says. And I think I, I quote at such length because I think she summarizes a lot of people's feelings about Dirty Harry. And of course, she invokes the F word, fascism. So let's talk about the F word for a moment. 
Let's is Gertie Harry really fascist? Well, um, it seems absolutely to me, not. <laughs> absolutely not. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's it, it's obvious from the get go that, you know, this is not a fascist movie because what is fascism but the heavy hand of the state itself? All right. The problem in Dirty Harry is not that the not that the hand of the state is too heavy, but on the contrary, that it's too light. Okay. There's nothing fascist about it. If anything, the sympathies in Dirty Harry lie in precisely the opposite direction, which is to say anarchist. Yeah. You've got the state that yeah, the state has the state has abdicated its responsibility for apprehending this vicious killer, and thus Harry has to do it himself in yeah. defiance of the police. So it's odd that people talk about Dirty Harry as if it were a fascist movie, because it seems to me the very opposite of a fascist movie. But but don't you think Pauline Kale like was just was basically you know, obviously I can't see inside her head, but when I read, if I replace, um, if I replace the word fascist with the word authoritarian in her review, I still find it Mm -hmm. wrong, but I find, I still think it's, I still think it's wrong, but I think it makes sense. Like, I feel like, like what she wanted to say was what she meant to say was authoritarian, but she used fascist instead because fascist just seems like to me a, a complete, um, like just a misnomer. It's just a complete, like you you use the wrong term. Like it doesn't it doesn't but seem it doesn't make any sense to me. Wouldn't authoritarian be subject to the same criticism? Yes, but I I still think her her reading of the movie would be wrong. But it would be wrong in a right. way that that made sense to me. Fascist seems like. Uh, completely uh, out of left field, you know. Like I, I understand how you could, for instance, like I understand how you could critique, um, let's say, uh, Bernie Sanders or something like that as being um, a somebody like a big government liberal or something like that. But to call him a right. communist is uh, it's it's not even wrong. It's like it's like you you clearly don't understand what communist means, you know. Like like her saying fascist in in a, in the sense of critiquing this movie as being fascist makes me think that she doesn't understand what fascist means. Like fascist can't mean well. Anybody, I think she uses it as a like. generally opprobrious term for people with offensive politics, the way well, it's they, still used nowadays. But yeah, as I say, that's pretty the movie sympathies. <laughs> What's that? That's pretty sloppy. A <laughs> little bit. A yeah. little bit. Okay. So more more a... than more than a little. But the movie yeah. sympathies, insofar as it has political sympathies, seem to me a good deal more anarchist than fascist. It's just yes. here we are in a state in which the police are not doing their job. Somebody has to do their job. Here is that person. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Andrew, Andrew Coyne had like a, a critique of the Democratic Convention that he wrote in, mm-hmm. um, in the New York, was it in the New York, New York, New Yorker? Anyway, and it was a couple of weeks ago. And he said that, um, 
you know, the state has one basic function, which is to keep the peace and to defend uh, property and people. And to that's just like a very kind of, you know, price of admission. It doesn't matter you know, what form of government it is. That, that is a very basic requirement. And he said, if you are going to condone looting and, and not actually serve those basic functions... Uh, he said, you know, I will be against you uh, regardless of whether you are, you know, right wing, left wing, libertarian, Republican, whatever. I don't care. Like if, if you're not, if you're not going to serve that basic function of government, I'm against you. And, you know, he got roundly attacked uh, for it. But, mm-hmm. and, you know, as a, as a number of people uh, pointed out in social media land, um, essentially what he was saying was the same message as Dirty Harry. This is just a basic function. This is a very basic, basic yeah. function, right? And to act like this, yes. is, uh, this is political, uh, whether it's fascist or it's... it's or, that's ridiculous. It's, not, it's, not, it's actually not political. It's just the basic, basic thing that you're expected to do as, as the... Uh, that, that's why you get the monopoly on the use of force. <laughs> that's exactly right. This is what it's for. Yeah, but I think and if Pauline you're not going to do is, I think Pauline Kael is wrong about the movie in a more fundamental way from this than this. I think she's wrong about the movie from an aesthetic perspective because she regards this as a sort of good versus evil, good wins in the end, everybody triumphs, it's like a fairy tale. I think she actually uses the word fairy tale, all of these things. And in my view, that's not what the movie is about at all. In my view, Harry is gradually driven to the measures that he takes precisely because he wants the police bureaucracy to do something about it, and they refuse to do so. They systematically refuse to do so. Now, I think the scene that really underlines this is the famous scene at the beginning where he stops the bank robbery. You remember. Okay. He's going into sure, lunch. Sure. Yeah. He's eating lunch at the lunch counter. And he doesn't even turn around. He asks the lunch counter guy if there's exhaust coming out of the car, if, if the car across the street still has its engine running. And he says, yeah. how do I know? He says, uh, oh, there's a, there'll be exhaust coming out of the pipe. And the lunch counter guy looks, he says, ah, such pollution. It's terrible, right? <laughs> All right. And Clint doesn't get up and immediately go to stop the robbers and apprehend the criminals or take matters into his own hands or anything like that. On the contrary, he tells the lunch counter guy to phone it in. He tells him exactly what to say. I think it's a two one one or whatever. He says, make sure to tell him it's in progress. (laughs) Right. So now the driver's sitting outside the bank, the bank robbery has taken place. Quint's trying to eat his lunch, minding his own business, more or less. And he says explicitly, now if they can just wait until the cavalry gets here. He wants to put matters in the hands of the department. He is a cop and he acts like a cop. He does exactly what a cop should do. 
But of course, that doesn't happen. The alarm goes off, the guys come out shooting, and he's forced to walk out on the street and, you know, shoot them up and stop the robbery, which of course he does, being Coin Eastwood. But Siegel makes it clear in this scene that he does this only as a last resort. Yeah. Only because the other police didn't arrive in time. Only because he has no backup. It's only because he has no other choice. He doesn't willingly take matters into his own hands. He unwillingly takes matters into his own hands. Yeah. So he's not, a, he's not a cowboy. He's not a reckless cowboy. No, 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 no. He's not a cowboy. He's acting as a policeman is supposed to act. Now, in the later movies, Callahan already has a reputation, so of course he doesn't bother with any of this subtlety, but Dirty Harry is a much better movie than the later movies, precisely because this sort of thing is there. Okay. There's, um, you know, one of the first things that I heard about this movie when I was probably a teenager was I remember Mm -hmm. uh, my uh, my mom's boyfriend at the time uh, when I was a teenager, he told me he taught like uh, film at a college here in Montreal, and uh, he he told me, "Oh, that movie, it's like so racist." And uh, and racist. I remember what, yeah. And when I saw the movie, I remember being really surprised because it seemed to me that the the movie sort of really ends over backwards of diffuse that charge and you know everything from you know the fact that uh, they jokingly say like oh he hates he's a you know he's a all-purpose misanthrope he hates everybody right uh, when he meets right, his new right. partner right i he uh, he's like right. yeah, i hate everybody so they kind of make fun of well, that. Well, and then well, his yeah well, uh, his new partner says well how do you feel about mexicans as <laughs> he says uh especially spick yeah yeah and he seems like he's, and then, you know, the, the doctor who treats him uh, and stitches him up is this African-American guy who's clearly a long-term friend of his. Uh, and he has, right. so it seems like the, the movie is um, really at pains to, to sort of diffuse any charges that this guy is a, a racist cop, Right. And, and well, not to mention the obvious fact that the that that Scorpio is a white guy. Yeah, he's a yeah, he's a white guy who like, seems to be um, a white guy who's uh, in many ways sort of kind of seems very kind of intelligent and well read, and he's like <laughs> he's, he's he, there's no way you can excuse his actions. Uh, and say that, oh, he's uh, like, you know, Pauline Kael says at one point in her review of the movie, well, we know, and she says this in this very flippant way, well, we know that crime is just a function of uh, of poverty and of uh, deprivation and of psychopathology. Well, I, I, suppose we, I suppose we know that if we're Pauline Kael or Ramsey Clark, but I'm not so sure. Yeah, I mean, we do. Okay, here, here's what we actually, I've been teaching a course on this to police tech students for years now. Um, called by, mm-hmm. The course is called Good and Evil, and, and we actually go into all of the, the research on the, the sources of crime. And yes, it is absolutely true that um, uh, when you have 
uh, when you have a lot of unemployment and you have a lot of poverty and you have uh, various kinds of social dysfunction and deprivation, that definitely um, increases increases crime and criminality to some extent. But it, it is also true that even in very prosperous times uh, when things are going great, you can have people who are brought up uh, in loving homes with both parents and uh, who have no uh, no sort of psychological problems that we can detect who are just fucking evil. Like, their evil exists in the world. There are people who are just uh, shitty, right? And like, and so to, ex- to, to act as she does in the review that somehow like, oh, well, we know. <laughs> that is just not true at all. Maybe Jean-Jacques Rousseau knows, right? And assumes that like, all things leave the hands of God perfect, but are corrupted in the hands of men, as he says at the beginning right. of Emil. But that's that's like enlightenment uh, bullshit. That's like not true, actually. Like there are people who are. I mean, lots of the, the Nazis were uh, very good husbands and fathers and devout Christians. Uh, you know, good family men, <laughs> and they did horrible things. You know, in so, any case, this doesn't. This, this this criticism as a matter of aesthetics has no validity because the movie does not deal with, nor should it deal with, the psychology of Scorpio. It concerns the psychology of the cop. Yes. And, and, and if you actually, if you reframe it as about the psychology of the cop, I think what you find is Dirty Harry is, uh, you know, rather than being a, a propaganda film as Pauline Kale sees it. It's actually kind of an art film. It's almost like, like well, it a, is like a Dostoevsky. It definitely story. is. I, I'll, I'll tell you something that struck me about it only after I'd seen it four or five times. And once you see it, you can't really unsee it to begin with. It takes place in San Francisco. Now, San Francisco is known for many things, but one of the things it's known for is being extremely hilly. It's very Mm -hmm. up and down. And if you look at Dirty Harry, I dare say that there are more shots of stairs and people going up and down stairs in Dirty Harry than any movie I have ever seen. It's very high and low that way. Wow. Consider that on the one hand, Scorpio is a rooftop killer. He's a rooftop prowler. So he goes up all these stairs to get to rooftops. All right. And consider on the other hand that his job is as a groundskeeper. Very high <laughs> and low. So you do get some kind of insight into Scorpio's psychology but it's not given in an obvious political or ham-handed way. It's simply given by the way he conducts what he considers his business, which is killing people. And if you look at the, you, you see him kill someone only once. It's in not the very first scene, which as you say, is the shot of all the, uh, the wall of all the police officers killed in the line of duty, but it's in the second scene. It's in the second scene where the viewer is literally staring down the barrel of Scorpio's gun and he's like, shooting like from a, a rooftop. Tom, as he, like a peeping Tom. Yeah, yeah. At that woman, the well, gorgeous I'll get, woman I'll, swimming I'll get in the pool. I'll get to that in a minute because yeah. that's another, 
That's another interesting aspect of this. But you're staring down the barrel of his gun, and he's shooting at another rooftop. He's shooting at a rooftop pool, and he's shooting at a woman, a beautiful woman. You can use, you don't see much of her, but you see enough to see that she is beautiful, uh, who's swimming in the pool, and you see him nail her, and that's it. So yeah. essentially the take from that and it's reinforced by all the other details in the movie is this is a guy who in life is not king of anything, but in his fantasy world where he's a killer, he's king of the sky. And that's what mm -hmm. you see. All right. Because this woman essentially is competing with him. Okay. For the rooftop. And he's not having that. And bang. That's it. You know, and I you never don't thought see about anyone that. else on that rooftop. Yeah. It's ju it's just that one woman. There's nobody yeah. else there. No, and it's funny because I, I didn't think about the whole stairs and the, the kind of elevation thing. But when he goes and finds his place, you know, where he's a groundskeeper, he lives mm -hmm. literally underground. He lives in a basement. That's right. So he's almost like Dostoevsky's underground man, you know, like where he's right. just... Uh, you know, just constantly feels so much uh, kind of status anxiety towards like these people that are higher than him. And he feels like he's, he's better than them, you know, like, and it, that's, that's a really it's, interesting it's insight. It's very high yeah. and low. It's, it's quite reminiscent of the theme in uh, Kurosawa's movie. I don't know if you've ever seen high and low. No, I have not. Oh, it's a terrific movie. But in that movie, there's a kidnapping of a rich man's, rich man's son, and the rich man lives in a house in a hill. And the guy who kidnaps him can see the house from his miserable apartment. So you sort of get this high and low aspect in much the same way. I thought of Kurosawa when I, when I saw this. But once you see it, you unsee it. You can't unsee it. Uh, in fact... Nobody gets in an elevator the entire movie. Yeah. They always... So Despite true. the fact that it's San Francisco, it's all up and down stairs. Even when he goes to the mayor's office, you would expect him to get in an elevator, but he doesn't. He goes up this big flight of stairs. Apparently, the mayor's office is on the second floor or something. Yeah. And I remember when he's talking to the wife of that cop uh, who's been shot, they're walking upstairs. And I remember thinking they're walking really, downstairs. Yeah. Downstairs. I remember thinking that's a really weird shot. That must have been really like uncomfortable to set up. And like, why are they doing it there? Why couldn't they be talking on the street or on the like? But yeah, they're like they're going down the stairs and they're talking. They're going down the stairs. Yeah, and exactly she says, right. and she she talks and it, to him it, about it's his weirdly, are you it's weirdly shot. It's this sort of it's this sort of open stairwell, so you see them yeah. passing through the windows at each flight. It's a it's a very weird shot. So that's and, right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Huh. But it's but it's very it's very striking the way he does that, and by virtue of that detail, you do get some insight into the killer psychology. Just incidentally. Okay, so you now, see that he's got he's got like a weird kind of he's got like a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. Well, of course, of course. 
Hmm. Well, you know, I, another thing that uh, my, my friend brought up to me when we were talking about times we've heard Dirty Harry uh, quoted in popular culture in the last, in our lifetimes, uh, another time that he mentioned, which I had forgotten about, uh, but was, you know, after the Me Too movement came on the scene, <laughs> there were actually people who were saying on uh, on Jezebel and stuff like that, that Dirty Harry should be uh, should actually be looked at again and and read as a feminist like movie <laughs> because because this was one of the first movies that pointed out a a deep flaw in the liberal view of of law and order and justice that uh, it's so focused on the rights of the accused and the rights of the the criminal that it completely uh, doesn't take into account the rights of victims and that it's like, it's so focused on justice. It, it doesn't try and balance justice, you know, for the accused as well as the, the victim. And they said, you know, here you have in dirty Harry, I, I thought this was a, kind of a crazy reading, but it's funny. It's interesting. Uh, it was to say that dirty Harry is uh, is a kind of a precursor to the me too movement's idea critique of liberalism that uh, you have to, take care of the rights of uh so in the same way that uh you know women who you know and i've seen this with like many of my students uh you know my female students who've been like uh, assaulted and stuff like that like the stories they tell me about the the bullshit that they have to deal with when they go to the the cops like it's just it's like straight out of dirty harry like you 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 really feel like um the the whole system is completely on the side of the um, of the accused, and you're the one that is kind of uh, being kind of demonized and being like, and you know, stuff like that. So, I, what do you think about that reading of Dirty Harry? That it's somehow like a feminist movie. I think that's utterly deranged. Although it's the first time I've heard it, so I do have to give the 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 women at Jezebel credit for novelty, if nothing else. But no, you, uh, that's not I what did. it's about at all. <laughs> so what's it about? You've been holding, you've been giving Pauline Kale her due. You've been giving the devil its due. But uh, now, what do you think it's all about? It's about two things. One is the gradual abdication of the police of their duties. Now, as you go up the scale in Dirty Harry, you don't find corruption, but what you find is progressive weakness and inefficacy. Dirty Harry's immediate supervisor, Lieutenant Bressler, is sympathetic, but fundamentally he's an order taker. He does what his superiors tell him to do, and that's pretty much it. He does his best, but his best is not very good. Past Bressler, we have the police chief, who is given to us as just a preening sort of non-entity. The one scene that outlines his character better than any other is the scene where they're all together and they're getting the ransom money for Dirty Harry to take to Scorpio. And Harry asks if anybody counted the money. And the police chief says, not my responsibility. Oh, and wow. that's pretty much I, his I, attitude toward everything. 
Oh wow! I I thought I thought the scene that completely summarized his character for me was when mm-hmm. six six foot four Harry Callahan walks into his office and the first thing he does is he says, "Sit down." He wants to. He wants That's a good to re- point. He wants to remain standing while Harry sits down. Because he That's can't, a good point. he can't, I, I, I saw that scene made me cringe so much. Because he can't because deal with him on his own terms. Man amen, man. amen, amen. He can't deal with him like, like, a, like, a, like a human being and just look him in the eyes and talk to him. He needs to uh, like pull rank. He needs him right. to, you know, and I, I've, I've seen this my whole life with people who, you know, pull rank and they insist on you calling them doctor or professor or, you know, whatever the fuck, like the argument from authority, right. As Aristotle says, right. The weakest form of argument it's it's, he immediately needs to assert dominance over him in this very, very contrived bullshit way. It's like, do, right. do you really need to like, you know, if, if that's how you have to, assert dominance over Harry Callahan. Well, you've just lost the argument before it even started. (laughs) Yes, you have. Yes, you have. But but the whole, like, uh, yeah, go on. I was going to say the police chief is not the worst because above the police chief, we have the mayor. Oh, Yes. Memorable he's like, he's like the, he's like John the, he, Vernon, who who later became immortal as Gene Wormer in Animal House. Really, I thought it was and played you, by Mayor De Blasio. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's just somebody who but, just has absolutely no core values or or philosophy or ideology. He's just he he, he puts his finger out into the wind every day and like <laughs> decides. You know, right. where, where, where he's going to blow, right? So, right. <laughs> and insofar as he has a core philosophy, it's honoring the promises that he makes to the criminal. He says he's going to pay to the criminal. He says he's going to pay the criminal. And then his argument to Callahan is, I gave him my word of honor. <laughs> and if anybody has ever seen John Vernon, and looked at his face, he conveys a loathsomeness on screen that's just impossible to duplicate between his greasy hair and his pockmarked face and his supercilious leer. He's just perfect for this sort of sleazy authority figure. You could not have better casting. And of course, Vernon is very aware of that and he plays into the hill. Yeah. But, well, it's, he, he totally, there's a, a word in, we have a phrase in French which does not translate very well in English, but uh, it's a face à claque. And it, it basically means mm-hmm. the closest translation in English is like a punchable face. And he has right. a, like, a, like a, a face you want to punch. Like you just, you, <laughs> you hate him. You look at him and you hate him. <laughs> you just like. Yeah, yeah. Had, Vernon, Vernon, is, Vernon is one of the few screen actors that you absolutely hate on sight. On site. And nothing that comes out of his mouth dissuades you from that in any way. Yeah, he's just completely. So essentially, essentially, the model is 
the further up the ladder you go, the worse things are. Yeah. And so uh, basically that's right. And that, that sets up a, a horrible situation for, for people who actually love justice because you know, they're going to have to do uh, sleazy things in order to make this work. Well, Harry, whatever else you can say about him, and there are many, many ways you can criticize him, and I will come to a couple of them, but Harry, whatever else you can say about him is a deadly serious cop. Mm-hmm. He, takes, he takes his job very seriously. He took the oath because he wanted to stop crime. He's what's called in the psychological literature an altruistic punisher. And this is why people go into police work, because they are that kind of person. Because they really feel like they should be out there protecting, that somebody has to do that job, and it may as well be them, and it falls on them. Yeah, I got to say, just a, like a shout out to my former students who are listening to this, who are cops, uh, and you are, you know, there's lots of them. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I've said this many times um, before. I, you know, the, if, if I had to speak in generalizations, the students that I have who are the most, you know, and I get to know them really well. I read a lot of their work. I talk to them. I like, the students mm-hmm. I have who are most high on altruism, most high on a genuine selfless desire to serve uh, the community and to, to help out other people. The, the people that are highest on that are my students who are in the nursing program and in the police tech program. And now, you know, we often think of, you know, things like, well, doctors are uh, doctor. The people who end up going to medical school, in my experience, tend to be very, very bright, but not particularly altruistic. They're going into it because it's high status and they want to make a lot of money. And, you know, their, their mom wants them to be a doctor and their dad wants, like they're, but you're absolutely right. Like most of the people, and and the thing is, is like, you know, this is another way in which Pauline Kale is full of shit. Uh, Police programs uh, and this is not recently. This is not like since, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement or since Rodney King. This is actually going back to the 1940s that, that I know of in North America. Police mm-hmm. departments have been weeding out people who have the so-called fascist personality since the 1940s and 50s. They, they actively, they give tests to their new people. They actively try and weed out the bullies. Um, and I'm not right. saying they, I'm not saying they get them all out, but to say that somehow they, they encourage this or they, uh, you know, that's just not true. <laughs> like, like she says at one point in a review of Dirty Harry that, oh yes, uh, uh, you know, the, the worst kind of people in my high school ended up being cops. That is completely not true. The, the people that the students I've had who end up being cops, they are the first ones to, to volunteer whenever there's like a problem uh, in the, the John Abbott College community. They're really public spirited uh, people as a general rule. So I think you're, you're absolutely well, right. You think- that, like, 
Harry is, is a very... Think, if you think about it, why, why would you become a police officer? It's not for money. It's yes. not for status. It's got to be for something else. Uh, it pays really well here, Aaron. It, it pays. I know it pays shit. Like I couldn't believe when I was living in Baltimore, uh, starting cop. And in Baltimore, you you actually are working in a war zone. Uh, but right. in Baltimore, uh, they were paid when I was living there. This you know not long ago. This is the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, they were paying their starting cops uh, like about. They were they were getting the same as like high school teachers, which is also kind of a war zone. They were getting uh, uh, like about like in the high twenties, you know, twenty eight thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year, which is dog yeah. shit. You know, like managers at McDonald's were making more than that. Like they were yeah. uh, they were getting paid horribly. Whereas here, uh, you get uh, you get you're making like. Montreal police are making like 75 grand a year um, plus like fantastic benefits and you retire with a full pension in your early fifties. Right. Mm -hmm. So you you get like a fantastic and you can have a a lot of them end up having like a second career as they start a business or they become a private investigator or they they do something else. Like, uh, so it's, it's a very, it, it pays here like a, like a dentist, you know, like it's, it's, it's a good job. Right. Um, but and uh, I'm sure it's like that now. And it's like that many places, but that was certainly not the case in 1971. No, it was absolutely not. It was up, ab- but you know, it's funny. Cause I, I remember everybody loves to hate on Rudy Giuliani, uh, now. And, you know, I, I would say he deserves the hate, but, uh, you know, I remember Mexico had massive problems with police corruption and stuff like that. And uh, I remember mm-hmm. watching this speech that he gave in uh, Juarez. And I actually, I was across the border in El Paso when he gave the speech. I was, uh, I was down there for 10 days for a conference. But, uh, and I heard, you know, all these people from El Paso were crossing the border to hear Giuliani speak. But they, uh, he, he basically like, he's, they, they brought him down. They, they kind of really feeded him and everything. And they're like, ah, you know, uh, and he looked at all the the data and he looked at all the problems and he said, uh, he, he went and talked to uh, like about 200 uh, Mexican police officers and, you know, in confidence with a translator and stuff like that. And, uh, and he, he, the basic thing he said in each was um, the core problem that you have is that you pay your police officers shit. Like you pay your, like you cannot live off of what you're paying. Like the only way they can feed their families is to take kickbacks and take bribes and stuff like that. Like what you need to do is you need to drastically increase what you pay them. And at that point, once you're giving them uh, a middle-class wage, um, at that point you can say anybody who uh, is corrupt, uh, you know, we're going to drop the hammer on you. Like you're, you're being greedy. Uh, but at this point, mm-hmm. um, anybody who's, who's being corrupt right now in your force is just being a good husband and father. <laughs> it was like the most amazing line right. ever. Like it was just like a mic drop moment, you know, but, but yes, you're right. Uh, generally speaking, 
you, you don't go to become a cop because you want to make, you want to have the house on the hill. Right. No, of course not. And the scene that you talk about where he's going down the stairs with the wife of his partner who's been put in the hospital, uh, she asks him, why do you, why do you keep at it? Why are you still a police officer? And he looks at her and he says, I don't know. I really don't. And the movie is largely about his recognition of what it is he's really doing. It's self-recognition. At the end, when he tosses his badge into the mine pond, it's a recognition that what he's doing is, in fact, punishing criminals. That's what he wants to do. And if the police force presented from doing that, well, then he doesn't really want to be on the police force. That's what he wants to do with his life. He wants to punish criminals. He doesn't want status. He doesn't want money. He doesn't want any of these things. And there are jokes about how poor he is in the movie, in fact. When he gets blood on his slacks and the doctor wants to cut him off and he says, uh, no, no, pull them off. He, and the doctor says it's going to hurt. He says, for, for twenty nine fifty, let it hurt, right? Okay. I totally, I has, totally missed no that. Interest. I totally missed that. See, I read yeah, that yeah, as yeah, him being, I read that as him being cheap, but you're completely right. That actually, I read it wrong. It's actually him being poor. Right. He has no money. You never see his house. He has no sex life in Dirty Harry either. No. His wife is dead. And he evinces no interest in women throughout the movie whatsoever. No sexual interest. No sex life. No outside interest. No money. No status. No nothing. All he's about is punishing criminals. Single-minded in that way. And if the police okay, department I, is actually, going to interfere with that, well, then so much the worse for the police department. You, you actually, you just brought something to my mind, which I wanted to ask you about. So there's this one scene, which, which I found absolutely brilliant in terms of, uh, you know, you know, the whole thing they say, like in, in really good writing, don't tell me, show me, you know? So very mm -hmm. often, like one of the things I, I really loved about uh, Dirty Harry is that uh, you see that kind of writing just the entire movie is 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 a kind of a an exemplar of that kind of writing don't tell show right so uh, there's this one scene where you know where they get the wrong address and he's standing up on the the i think it's like on the dumpster and he's looking in the window yeah. and there's the, yeah. the woman with like the fantastic boobs and she's like with her boyfriend and this like uh it's like asian guy japanese guy and they're like and um the guy sort of and they see him like peeking in and they pull him down and they they like you know they they punch him and kick him and beat him up a little bit right and, and then they start beating on him yeah they and start his partner comes him. to his rescue his partner comes to the rescue and i just found this scene absolutely like we we actually Annalisa and i we like we paused the movie and we just sort of like right. 
looked at each other like, oh my God, that was fucking cinematic brilliance. Like, okay, so he's, he's peeking in on these people uh, that are fooling around and uh, he's just bought his girlfriend a new piece of clothing. She's like getting undressed and trying it on and stuff like that. He's staring in um, and he basically got the wrong address. And so he's looking in. Uh, he gets like discovered by these neighbors. These neighbors come to the defense of their, their neighbors kind of honor and privacy and knock him down and start beating on him. He gets rescued by his partner. Um, and his partner is totally kind of filled with moral indignation. Don't you realize this is a cop who's on official police business? And what I think is so right. fascinating is Harry understands that there's a higher principle of justice and that the appearance of fairness is just as important just as important as fairness and so it doesn't matter that his intentions were pure it doesn't it doesn't matter that he was he he was honestly trying to find um a killer and that he was wrong um that doesn't matter his intentions don't matter he's a representative of the state and he's just done something wrong and what this guy's neighbors are doing is right and justified. And they don't, it doesn't matter that he's a cop. They're completely, what they're doing is right. He doesn't like castigate them says, at all. He doesn't I, go on. And he tells yeah. his partner to let them go. Yes. Because he understands that what they've just done is uh, pro-social. <laughs> Like that was that's a pro, right. that was right. a, that was a pro social beating, right? There, Which is there, what, are, uh, there are a couple things. There are a couple things I want to say about that scene as well, and I, I, I was going to bring that bring that very scene up if you didn't. One is that this is early on in the movie, and early on in the movie we see Harry himself, ironically, as a victim of vigilante. Yes, absolutely. Because that's what these neighbors are. They're vigilantes. They are literally taking the law into their own hands. And they're saying, oh, and they're absolutely Tom, right. going to beat you up. And they're absolutely right. That's right. And, and, and Harry, and they're absolutely Harry, right to do so. Yeah, they don't, Harry they don't is, call the cops and try to get him arrested no, or anything. They, they take matters they into their own hands. They kick wailing on yeah, the guy. There's a pervy guy staring at our neighbor through our neighbor's window. <laughs> like, like, this is absolutely right. right. That's the first point. So there's, there's, there's subtlety in the movie in that very early on, you see him as himself a victim of vigilantism, but also there's something else about that scene. What's that? He looks into that window longer than is absolutely necessary <laughs> to conduct police business. Yes. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> and... This you can tell he's, he's, he's to, hard up. He's hard up. Yeah, he is. And yeah. and this brings us to two unsavory aspects of the police personality that I've described as the altruistic Punisher. Because the altruistic Punisher, as a personal as a personality profile, has many attractions, but it is not entirely attractive. And one of the unattractive aspects of it is that it is by necessity voyeuristic. 
Yes. If you take it upon yourself, if if you if you take it upon yourself to be an avenging angel on behalf of society, of necessity, you're going to be minding other people's business more than most of us would consider right or normal or savory. Yes. And and that is what you see him doing in this scene. And you yeah. also see him doing it later on in the police stakeout. When they're staking out Scorpio by the church, I don't know if you remember, but Eastwood has got the binoculars yeah. and he's looking around and he looks into an apartment and he sees a naked woman opening the door to three guys. Yes. And he follows the scene. All right. And he says to himself, you owe it to yourself to live a little, Harry. <laughs> yeah. But these are the only hints of sex that you get in the entire movie from Callahan. That's it. That's all you get. There's nothing more than that. There's no girlfriends. There's no sex. There's nothing like that. All right. There's just these two things. It's the voyeuristic aspect of his personality. And Stiegel does not shy away from this. On the contrary, he goes to great lengths to convey it to us. And it's nowhere better conveyed than in these two scenes. But he, but he also... He I, is know, really, I, yeah. But, but I also like how he... You know, there's, there's this wonderful line in um, the, the movie Seven with... Um, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt and uh, yeah, I know the movie. Uh, Kevin Spacey, where uh, Kevin Spacey is, you know, in the in the car with uh, with Brad Pitt, and he Brad Pitt sort of castigates Kevin Spacey for he says, you know, you say that you are like this sort of ideologue uh, prophet who's trying to sort of unveil the seven. You know, deadly sins to this horrible, like bring this. He's like, but you know, you're full of shit because I, I know you actually enjoyed torturing those people and you enjoyed. Uh, and and he says like, and he basically calls bullshit on Brad Pitt's uh, objection. He says, look, uh, yeah, sure. Like, do I enjoy doing my work? Sure. Would you enjoy having some time alone with me? in a basement where there were no cameras where you could beat on me for a while. Like, does that mean that you're not a good cop? Like, yeah. And you see that with Callahan where he more and more over the course of the movie, he, he clearly takes pleasure in, in kind of sadistic pleasure in punishing the evil. Right. He's got to, he's got to, he's got to look like, like you, like you said in your original, uh, review of Dirty Harry, which I thought was like fucking brilliant. That's why we're having this interview. Um, the where you said he's got. You look at when he when he says that make my day speech. It's not well. Make the, my day is some sudden impact. Yeah, but when he says like, you, you mean, know, do you do feel, you, no, no. Do you, do you feel, feel lucky? lucky? Do you feel lucky? Do you feel, you're right. Yes. You're right. You're right. Uh, when he says like, do you feel lucky? You're absolutely right. There's a kind of look of glee and pleasure sadistic pleasure on his face of having power over somebody else. Right. And I think that's, that's absolutely brilliant in terms of understanding that, you know, how, why would somebody do this job? 
where you get shit on all the yeah. time, you make no money, right? You must take pleasure in it somehow. You're a human being, like you're, you know, you must be deriving. How are you getting your jollies off? Well, clearly, you're getting your jollies off of it because, first of all, you've you've got a kind of a voyeuristic tendency, which is perhaps dialed up more than what you would find in the general population, and this. This job uh, indulges that to some extent. And you've got a kind of a sadistic uh, side to you, which is dialed up a little bit more than the general population. And that too gets uh, gets satisfied by this job. And this is the, the genius of this character in this movie, that they, they show you how a real, decent, moral human being could be doing a job like this. Yes. Those are the two aspects of the altruistic punisher that to the general public are distinctly unattractive. Voyeurism and sadism. They are there. Yes. And and they and they are shown in Dirty Harry very explicitly. The sadism as you say when he pulls the gun, when he pulls the trigger in the empty gun, and of course he knows it's empty, but nonetheless, he enjoys seeing that bank robber suffer. He enjoys it. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you're... He, he, en- he enjoys seeing criminals suffer. There are people like that, and in fact, they should be cops. Now, you, I'm sure, are familiar with the distinction between the church militant and the church spiritual. No, like the Jesuit distinction. Uh, okay. Are you talking about the Jesuit well, distinction? Just, just, just the general distinction in that the church militant is the church hierarchy. It's the Catholic church itself, you know, going out and saving souls and what have you. And spiritual is the Christian ideal as enumerated in the Bible. This is the distinction. It's commonly made. In my opinion, what Dirty Harry is really about, to put it in one sentence, is the difference between the police militant and the police spiritual. The police militant is the police department, and Callahan is the police spiritual. And that is what the movie is about. Wow. Can you expand on that? Well, sure. Callahan is the ideal cop type. He has all of the characteristics that you look for in a police officer. This is what you want, both good and bad. And you do not get the good characteristics of Callahan without the bad characteristics. They all come together. It's all necessarily a psychological package. If you had to invent an ideal police type, Callahan is what you would invent. Callahan is the police spiritual. Yet he is stymied and harassed and baffled in every way by the police militant, which is to say the police bureaucracy itself, the church of the police, as it were, the chief and the sergeant and everybody else. And he proves at every turn that his judgment is superior to that 
of the department itself. And I think the best way to show that is the scene where he's carrying the ransom money to Scorpio. He's got his yellow bag. What's that? I I love it that it's to the cross in the park. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Mount Davidson Park like, at the end. I, 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 Go I, to the I, cross, I, right? I know. I, I just, I, I absolutely love this because I, I climbed Mount Royal as you've done with me when you came to Montreal. Uh, I climbed Mount Royal every day. And we have, like San Francisco, we have a, a big giant cross in the middle of our most important park. And, uh, and I love it that all of this action takes place at the foot of the cross. <laughs> It's just, it's just, right. it, it's, right. it's almost, no, it's fantastic. It's, it's almost right on, it's, it's almost fantastic. on the nose. There, there, there are it's many things that you could say yeah. about this scene and the way it's shot, but I'm just going to point out one. Callahan would die, but for two things. The first is the knife that he carries with which he stabs Scorpio in the leg. And the second is the fact that his partner is trailing him and comes on the scene just in time to fire some shots, not enough to wound the killer and enough to get himself critically wounded and eventually put out of the force, but just enough to distract the killer long enough so Callahan can do what he needs to do. Without either of these contingencies, Callahan dies in that scene. Now, the point I want to make is this. One of these was in explicit violation of police orders. Bressler told him, I don't want anybody on this job. I don't want anybody following. I don't want any of this. And Callahan said, not a chance. And he hooks it up so that his partner follows him. (laughs) And the second was with the, the second was with the disapprobation of the police. You remember in Bressler's office, Callahan is taping the knife to his ankle with scotch tape. He asked him for scotch tape, right? And Bressler says that any police officer should know how to use such a weapon. It's a shame. It's a real shame. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, it's that very weapon that saves his life. Yeah. So you should not even, it's not even like using, having actually, knowing this this kind of knowledge is inherently evil because it's dishonorable somehow. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but again, I think there more than anywhere, you see the contrast between police militant and police spiritual. What Callahan yeah. is, in fact, psychologically is the perfect cop it's the funny because you, you're yeah cop. you're you're actually you're, you're, you're convincing you're convincing me of your theory because i remember uh this this wonderful uh in in one of the great biographies that i've read of uh, ignatius Loyola, uh there's this mm-hmm. this scene where uh Loyola goes to the pope and he says, uh, you know, the reason why the Protestants are eating your lunch is because the Protestants, uh, they have a more realistic 
attitude towards the world. They work with the powers that be. They learn the language of the people. They use the power of rhetoric. And, uh, and, and the Pope says to, to Loyola, he says, uh, just to even know how to use the weapon of rhetoric is, is reprehensible. And right. so Loyola, Loyola right. basically says to, uh, to his friend, he says, I'm going to prove the Pope wrong. So he goes the next day into the, uh, the court of the Pope and he gives a, a, a passionate, passionate speech in favor of a particular doctrinal position, right? And he, he goes on for, for two hours. And by the end of the speech, everybody, all the cardinals, you know, are completely convinced by Leola. And the Pope is like, you know, damn, you know, it's like after an Obama speech, he's like, wow, that, that was like, I'm totally convinced. Where do I sign? You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, uh, Leola says, wait. Um, so he comes the next day and he asks the Pope to bring uh, a different set of, of, uh, courtiers, like a different kind of crew of, uh, of cardinals and of, High church officials, like it, he wants the Pope to be the New only court. one. Okay. He wants to. You, you see where I'm going here. Uh, he wants the Pope to be the only person who was there yesterday, aside from Loyola, right? So right. he gets up and he gives this impassioned lecture on this doctrinal point for two hours, arguing completely the opposite position. And by the end of it. Everybody around the Pope is cheering and completely convinced by that position. Um, and uh, he <laughs> and the Pope is just kind of shaking his head like, damn, this motherfucker's got game. You know, like, like he just like, and so he meets with him afterwards and he says, all right, I will fund the Society of Jesus to a massive extent. And yes, I now see the power of rhetoric. Uh, and he's like, we mm-hmm. have to use, we, they, we Catholics need to use this power. But up until that point, he felt like this is a dirty weapon that should not be used in the hands of, and, and he, that it's Loyola who really kind of brings this distinction that you're talking about between the, uh, right, the, uh, the spiritual church and the, the church militant and the church spiritual that yes, we need to have our, our sort of, you know, our, our hippies that are off in the, <laughs> off in the desert, you know, denying the flesh and doing their thing. Yeah. We got, we've got to have that, you know, our Franciscans and stuff like that serving the poor. But if we don't know how to actually deal with power and the world as it is, uh, the Protestants are going to keep eating our lunch, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it's mm-hmm. a, I, I find your, your, your analysis it, 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 very, very compelling. The whole, te- the whole tenor of the conversation is reminiscent of Callahan's conversations with the mayor. Yes, yes, absolutely. Except the Pope is way smarter than the mayor. <laughs> exactly. The Pope <laughs> is not played by, by John Vernon. So how do you, why do you think um, Dirty Harry, 
uh, if you look on any of the kind of the online uh, stats of like what movies are most watched movies, why do you think mm-hmm. Dirty Harry um, in the last year is sort of creeping up the charts like crazy? Is it? It is. It is. I didn't it's, realize um, that was the case. It, it, yeah, it absolutely is. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's come back like big time. It's being watched a lot more. Um, it's people are mentioning it a lot more. What do you think it is about this particular moment that is making people feel like Dirty Harry has something to say to this moment, right? I mean, you know, when you, when you see, for instance, uh, in 1984, suddenly, you know, after being like kind of not not mentioned at all, suddenly 1984 is like a bestseller again. Um, you know, that's interesting. You want to see well, why are suddenly people reading George Orwell like crazy right. again, or, or why are people reading like Anne Rand or, or Marx or whatever? Like, uh, why do you think mm-hmm. people people so many people are finding Dirty Harry? Uh, relevant again as a movie? Well, what I would say is that what we observe in many places and have observed is police abdication. I live in New York City, and I simply, I, I certainly see it. De Blasio offers so little support for the police that the police will not defend ordinary order. And I think there are cities in which this is far more pronounced. If you see this in Seattle, you see this in Portland, you saw this in Kenosha to a certain degree. And I think ordinary citizens, when they see a police force that simply will not do the job that they are paid to do and that they are sworn to do, obviously the movie that best represents what happens in such a case and what needs to be done in such a case is dirty Harry. I I just, I think it's perfect. I think it's perfectly clear. I think if you buy the police abdication thesis, then it's contemporary relevance becomes immediately obvious. Well, the, one of our, one of our upcoming guests uh, on the Likeville podcast, uh, she, she agreed um, a couple of days ago to come on the podcast is uh, our, our mayor here in Montreal. Uh, she's the first female mayor of a major city in, um, in North America, of a really big city in North America. Uh, oh, Count. nice. Congratulations. And, uh, and she, she's coming on the podcast and I, you know, I've been like talking back and forth with her about a number of different issues. And one of the things I brought up was, um, de Blasio because I I'm so kind of disgusted with this guy and disappointed with this guy. And uh, the thing is, is like, just to give you an idea, Aaron, we have a mayor who is about, (laughs) you know, on the progressive, you know, right, left O meter. We have a mayor that is Mm -hmm. like at least three times more progressive than de Blasio. And she said she was completely uh, chilled by the way that he deals with law enforcement. She, she, she just said, you know, like a very basic, basic function of government. She, you know, she's smart enough to understand 
She's like, a basic function of government is to keep the peace and to protect property. That's, that's not a political thing. That's just like, that's just the price of admission, the price of getting in the door. And if you're not willing to do yeah. that, and if you're not willing to support the people who do that, um, y- you don't, y- you've just lost all of your legitimacy. <laughs> you're just like completely. Right. And she's like, I don't, because she very much, um, like we had, you know, to give you an example, like to contrast, you know, de Blasio and other people like him, with my mayor. Uh, like mm-hmm. we had recently a bunch of activists uh, tore down a statue of Canada's first prime minister because they said that he was a racist and he was like, a, you know, like he set up the residential schools for indigenous people and he did all this shitty stuff. Right. And he's a right. bad person. So they ripped down and they posted a video of um, of him, of his statue being ripped down online. Well, you know, our mayor immediately responded and said, um, "This is absolutely bullshit." Like, if you want to, like, she said, "You know, we have uh, changed the names of a number of streets here in Montreal uh, because, like, the people that they were named af- after were." no longer kind of uh we weren't crazy about them now because we've changed our ideas about about things uh but you do mm-hmm. that by by petitions by like you know you you do that in various kind of peaceful democratic means like if you think that you can just like by force go in like rip down statues and rip down stuff like like it, and she got totally trashed by like the far left in Montreal for this. They're like, she supports mm-hmm. uh racist. She's a racist pig, horrible one white supremacist who supports right. like residential schools. And the thing is like, if you know Valerie, like this is just like complete bullshit. Like she is like, she makes me feel like a reactionary conservative. <laughs> she's, she's so, so She's so progressive, but she believes in the rule of law, Aaron. She believes in protection of property. Yeah. She believes in like, and she's like, if you don't do that, uh, we're lost. We're completely lost. Yeah. um, I guess the, I guess the shortest way to put it is this is a moment in America in a lot of places in which order is being Disorder is being tolerated, and Dirty Harry is a fable about what happens when you tolerate disorder. Yeah, because you know, the the crazy thing is, is like the people who advocate um, anarchism. In my experience, in my forty year, forty five years on planet Earth, the people who advocate anarchism are ninety nine percent of the time are people who are at least capable of dealing with real anarchy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think most of us are very capable of dealing with real anarchy, to tell you the truth. um, Okay, what I mean by this, I was saying this with our our friend, yeah, with our friend uh, Brent Halonen in Michigan, uh, you know, I was talking with him about this the other day. Like, you know, these people who are advocating, like Brent 
knows how to, you know, owns lots of firearms, uh, knows how to use them, has lots of friends who know how to use them, uh, knows how to hunt, knows how to fish. His wife knows how to clean an animal. <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about some sort of romantic fantasy about like, you know, return to nature or, or like a kind of, you know, like walking dead scenario or something like that. I'm just no, saying that like, skills yeah, good the, for him. The, the, the far right, uh, the far right uh, militia types, um, I, I, I find them in many ways reprehensible and gross, uh, but at least, <laughs> at least they actually have. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that they're they're right. I don't I don't think they're right, and I actually think in certain ways they're quite naive about what real anarchy would look like. But um, mm-hmm. they have they have a way closer idea than some fucking vegan you know, like manager at a Starbucks in Portland who like is an anarchist. Like I think they actually have a, you know, a more realistic idea about what, um, because the thing is, is like in a, in a real sort of breakdown of the state where you no longer can count on the, the, the sort of the uh, Leviathan to sort of keep the peace and, and maintain order and stuff like that. Uh, the people that will will be able to survive in that environment are people who have lots of friends who are plugged into community who know how to use force and and know how to like take care of themselves and these are you know the people who are uh, tend to people who are, tend to be people who are heavily reliant on the state and on you know in their job, they're heavily reliant on HR to enforce its kind of anti-bullying and it's like, you know, anti-transphobic, like whatever. <laughs> they're heavily reliant on, on institutions to maintain their idea of justice. And yet they're demonstrating for anarchy that they're ill prepared to deal with. Oh, of course. I think most people understand perfectly well why the state has a monopoly on force. Most people understand that perfectly well. Oh, wow. Aaron, I, Aaron like, I think that may have been true when we were younger. I don't think that's, I don't think that's true now. I think, there's, I think there's a good 25%, maybe even as high as a third of the population of Canada. Well, okay, not Canada. Of the, I'd say there's a good, you know, maybe quarter of the population in the states, maybe ten, Canada is way more law and order than the states, but uh, maybe ten percent in Canada in the urban centers. I think there's there's an increasing number of people in the industrialized West who don't realize what you're about to say. That that could be true, but of course, like all, I, I defer to you on this point, John, because like all Canadians, you are an expert on American psychology. But, <laughs> What I will say, what I will say is that even people, which I still think is the vast majority, who are willing to concede that the state should have a force monopoly, recognize that it's a bargain. It's tit for tat. And when the state 
abdicates its responsibilities, then all bets are off. And I think you're seeing a lot of that. And as I say, I think Dirty Harry is a fable about that. Now, I don't think Harry is a perfect cop or a real cop in the sense that, you know, you would regard a real cop. I mean, obviously, anybody who goes into police work does not get into the sort of mix-ups that Callahan gets into. That just doesn't happen. What Dirty Harry is is not a portrayal of an actual cop. It's a portrayal of a psychologically ideal cop. It's a sort of cop allegory. And I think that's really what makes it attractive. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, you know, one of the things that I found, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that I loved when I first encountered Max Faber. I, I think he's just mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the greatest thinkers of the last 200 years. Uh, but one of the things that is just so fantastic about reading Max Faber is that he talks about exactly what you're saying about uh, about law enforcement and about uh, Harry Callahan, that he says that you know, in order to be really good at any kind of job, you have to not only kind of have um, a certain sort of set of competencies, you might say, like a certain set of like kind of you know strengths and a certain kind of intelligence. You have to have a certain kind of temperament, right? And then there's a there's a temperament that goes with different kinds of jobs. So if you are, uh, you know, if you're going to be um, a politician, well, you, or you're going to be like a real estate agent, or you're going to be an entrepreneur, it's sort of like, you know, like what Taleb says in, uh, in, in Anti-Fragile about like how um, you have to have a certain kind of temperament to be a successful entrepreneur. Now, having that temperament mm-hmm doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a successful entrepreneur. In fact, most people who have that temperament and are entrepreneurs fail. But his point, his point is, and the people who misread him think that somehow he's saying like, you have to be delusionally optimistic and you have to overestimate your, your chances of success in order to be, and actually what Taleb is saying is not a sort of power of positive thinking kind of argument. It's not a, you know, at all. He's saying that, like, um, this is the price of admission because you're engaging in a highly unlikely activity where, like, success is mostly not possible. (laughs) So you need to be extraordinarily uh, confident to a kind of stupid extent. You know, you have to be very, very extraordinarily overconfident and you need to not be terribly good at calculating the odds in order to be successful. Because if, if you were better at those things, you wouldn't do this. Right. And I think like go into it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and the genius of, of this movie is that it it sort of shows that like, uh, why would somebody ever go into police work unless you had these things that some people might see as failings? Right. Vices and virtues are contextual. Ordinarily, we would not regard voyeurism and sadism as particularly attractive characteristics. On the other hand, I want my cops to have a little bit of that. 
maybe even more than a little bit of that. I really do. Because that is indispensable to what makes a real, uh, what makes a cop a cop. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, the girl that I grew up with who was um, just, she was just totally kind of really nosy, but not in a kind of mm-hmm. uh, a malicious way. She was just super curious to know everybody's business. She always wanted to know right. like, you know, what was going on with everybody. And she wanted to know, like, she just, she just liked to sort of, you know, know all this stuff. And, um, and she, she's also, you know, basically a really great person and, you know, extremely smart, like fucking crazy smart. She works for um, the Canadian equivalent of the CIA now. Right. And I'm sure she's, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I'm sure she's. Well, I know I, I've talked to people who work with her, but and I've I've sent lots of uh, lots of sort of students to her to you know to apply and stuff like that. Like I, I recommend there's a certain kind of uh, you know student who's really really good at kind of information technology and really good at like computer science stuff, and I, I always encourage them, please go apply to CSIS, you know, we, <laughs> we need good people in our intelligence work. Like, so, uh, but, right, but yeah, right. you, you've got to have, if you're somebody like uh, Aaron Haspel, for instance, uh, who, you know, I've, I've been friends with you for years now and you're like, you're just not interested in, in people's, you know, you're not interested in gossip. Like you're not interested in like, kind of what's going on with people's personal lives and you're not interested in talking about that stuff. You're just not the guy no to go cop. into. You're, you're not the guy I, to end up in intelligence work because you have to have, you have to, you have to have a big kind of appetite for knowing about people's stuff, you know, and like people's like personal lives and who they're fucking and who and they're, what they're, yeah, and, and if same, you don't have in the that, same way, in the same way, you're just not going to have sufficient zeal about punishing criminals unless you take at least some pleasure in watching them suffer. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and I, I've I've said this, you know, very often with, um, you know, the kind of people who end up being like, you know, college profs and university profs and stuff like that. Very often, there are people who are basically really introverted people who got into academia because they like uh, studying and they like spending a lot of time alone in the library and in private study. And unfortunately, the main way that they get a job is they get a job, you know, teaching, which is like a job that is well suited for somebody who's like a total show off, like a total extrovert, right? Right. And, uh, right. and so they end up finding the actual job horrible. It's like soul crushing. They, they, they absolutely can't stand it. Right. And this is just like this, one of these like horrible mismatches, right? Like where, you know, what well, it is job- sort of an irony that in academia, teaching and research are joined at the hip in that way, because they seem to attract such opposite types. Oh, Absolutely. 
I mean, the people who are, and you know, once again, to go back to Max Weber, Max Weber saw this perfectly. If you look at uh, his essay, uh, one of the two brilliant essays that he wrote just before he died, you know, like uh, Max Weber, this is, you know, I've been thinking about him a lot lately. I, you know, because he died in the global pandemic, um, what we call the Spanish flu that hit after World, yeah, after World War One. He had struggled right. with just total debilitating depression uh, for, you know, like it, he had to like retire from his job. He was like home. He could barely even leave the house. He was so fucked up. He finally had like managed to get himself out of that dark place and he he was back and he was producing and he was studying like crazy and he was like he was producing all this fantastic work and then you know at the in his early 50s he got hit with the spanish flu and he died uh, and it's just it's so it's so unbelievably sad because he he just had got his shit together and he was starting to produce fantastic work, uh, and then he and then mm-hmm. he died. But but anyway, the two sort of essays, uh, the politics as vocation and science as vocation, which he, uh, which are the last two things that he basically produced. Uh, at science as vocation, that lecture is absolutely genius. But he basically says that. Uh, the the virtues that go into being a really good scientist are um he basically describes like you know when you're I, i'm sorry to bring this up aaron but like when you're when your dad died like that beautiful mm-hmm. uh obituary that your your sister wrote like uh where she yeah, talked yeah. about like she talked about your dad and like you know what kind of a what kind of a guy he was like basically mm-hmm. if you read science as a vocation like he describes somebody just like your dad. Like he basically says right. like, this is temperamentally speaking. This is exactly the kind of person who's best suited to being a, a scientist, to being a researcher. Like this is who you want doing this job. And he said, unfortunately we've set up a university system where the people that are most uh, popular with students are people who are would be better as like kind of preachers or politicians they're they're people who are good at speaking to big crowds and being very charismatic and stuff like that and he's like but the virtues and vices that that accord with being a good public speaker are absolutely not the virtues that accord with being a good scientist and he said, "This no, is, a, this, is Why would they this is a." But he said, "This is a major design flaw in the way modern academia is set up," because he said, "You know, in Germany yeah, right yeah. now, uh, in Germany right now, um, you know, and we we knew this earlier on from Schopenhauer, right? Because back when Hegel and Schopenhauer were were uh, speaking, um, you got paid not by the university, but you got paid by how many people showed up to your lectures." And Hegel mm-hmm. was a real draw, right? I mean, he would right. he would get like hundreds of people showing up to him because he was a real draw. Uh, Schopenhauer was not. He would have like 10, 15 people show up to his lecture. Right, right. And, right. and he specifically like, you know, because he was an asshole, uh, he specifically kind of like 
scheduled his lectures at the same time as Hegel's so that, you know, he, he wouldn't even get anybody who may have wanted to see both of them because he thought Hegel was such a, uh, you know, bullshitter. Uh, but like, so it's, uh, uh yeah, I believe, it, it's just, I believe the yeah. term he used was illiterate flat-headed scribbler. Yeah. Well, he, he, he got a dog. For Hegel. He got a dog and named it Hegel, and he used to beat his dog all the time. Right. We right. know that, right? Oh, yeah. Schopenhauer yeah, yeah. was a champion at Invective. No question about it. Yeah. But, but what is genius about Dirty Harry is that in the same way as, as Weber does in Science as a Vocation, is that he sort of says, uh, the movie sort of conveys the fact that there are a set of virtues and vices that go into making an ideal cop, right? And Callahan right. is it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Callahan is it. Yes. You know, like, I, I always say this when people say, like, well, you know, like, uh, you know, what is the perfect kind of uh, set of virtues and vices associated with being a, a college prof? And I was like, well... You want somebody who's basically kind of an extroverted show-off who has like a... <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's terrible. I'm like, sure. well, what else do you want? Do you want somebody that's like, right. you know, looking for people to sleep with? Like, you know, you don't want that. Like, you don't... No, you certainly like, don't want that. Yeah. Why else would somebody be doing this job? Like, you, you mm-hmm. have to ask, like, what are they, what are they in it for? Like, and, and yeah. you have to have a... You have to have an intelligent human answer to that question. Yeah, this is, that's what the movie is about. The movie, the movie answers the question, why be a cop? Because you like, you know, being a little bit of a busybody peeping Tom, a little bit, and you like punishing criminals. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Maybe that's not so bad. Criminals. Maybe that's not so bad. <laughs> it's certainly not so bad for cops. Maybe <laughs> these are not characteristics that you want in the general population, but these are characteristics you want in the cop population. This is the point. Yeah. And a lot of ba- a lot of bad judgment in the world stems from judging people outside of their particular context. Yes. The point is not whether Dirty Harry is a good person or a bad person. The point is whether he's a good cop or a bad cop. Yeah. It's funny. uh, Annalisa and I are reading right now. We're we're almost done with it. Um, This, you know, people have been recommending this book to me for years, but I've never got around to reading it. It's uh, Kramer's book, uh, What It Takes, uh, The Path to the White House, uh, which is like this. uh, It's often called like, oh, when I tell you, when I describe it, you're going to remember what I'm talking about. Uh, It's it's kind of, it's been called like an American Iliad. And it's this in-depth, really, really intense, it's like a thousand page book. Um, it's yeah, I've heard of the book. There's no way I'm ever going to read it. It's an in-depth description of the 1988 
campaign for the presidency. So it looks at uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Bob Dole, mm-hmm. uh, Gary Hart. Um, it looks at uh, you know all the Democrats, like sort of uh, uh, what's his, why am I forgetting this? The like the Greek guy from Massachusetts, the uh, Dukakis. Dukakis. Uh, it looks at like all of them, kind of um, this. He excludes Jesse Jackson because he said he he basically didn't get enough access to him or his campaign to sort of to get a good read on that. But so there were there were seven people running. Um, he, he excludes Jesse Jackson, but he gets the other six, and it's just this kind of very granular look at uh, what kind of a person you have to be in order to end up in a situation where you're running for president. It is absolutely fucking genius. Like I, I, if Max Weber were alive, he would, I'm sure he would love it, but he shows like the kind of personalities that these people have and the ways in which they are profoundly strange, <laughs> you know, like, profoundly. Right. but, but yeah, right. like in order to want something like this, right. And, and to be good at it. Right. And, and how single-minded, they have to be, and it's it's very much uh, you know as we were watching Dirty Harry, we uh, we constantly kept sort of stopping the movie, Alice and I, and saying that the parallels to what it takes were just uh, they just jumped right out. I mean, it was just amazing, yeah, like because yeah, because this movie sort of because he shows the kinds of virtues and vices um, that go into being the kind of person that would eventually end up running for president. Like these are not normal. (laughs) Like, you know, they have a bunch of, they have a bunch of, they have certain kinds of, uh, of neediness and certain kinds of that are just not found in the general population. Most people would never, ever, you know, want to do something that, that strange. Right. And so, and, and Dirty Harry does that for policing. Right. So it shows right. you like, this is exactly. like, what, yeah. I mean, so what, um, you said to me that, and I, this is a great place to, to finish. Um, you said that you thought the, the next installment of the Dirty Harry series, Bangham Force was, um, an apology for Dirty Harry. What, what did you mean by that? In a way, in a way, because it inverts the plot. Essentially, what you have is rather than the police being weak and efficacious, the police are actively malevolent, or not the police as a whole, but rather a certain cabal within the police, which has decided to go out and execute criminals on its own. And of course, these people are engaged in pure vigilantism of the sort that Harry does not engage in and doesn't engage in even in Dirty Harry. But at the same time, what the movie is trying to show with the Callahan who rejects these measures and winds up punishing these criminals and indeed killing them in the end, despite the fact that they are police officers, 
ostensibly is standing up for the four. So in a way, it looks like an apology for or retreat from the position that's outlined in Dirty Harry. But in another way, it's really not because what Callahan is standing up for is not the police as an organization, but his idea of what the perfect policeman should be. Wow. Well, thank you so much. The perfect policeman stands for law and order. The perfect policeman is pro-social. And it's not pro-social to run around executing criminals on your own, even if they are criminals. It's just no. not. No, of and if so. you want briefs for vigilantism, they are certainly available from that period. If you want a brief for vigilantism, you don't go to Dirty Harry. You go to a movie like Death Wish. <laughs> which is yeah, I know, all that, like pro-vigilante. Yes. Yeah. Charlie Brown. I love that, that scene in, um, uh, what is it? Uh, true romance where the, the drug dealer right. says like when Christian Slater walks into the, like to the whorehouse and he says like, we got a motherfucking Charlie Branson on here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, this, right. This motherfucker right. got a death wish. Yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those are like, those are like snuff films. I mean, those are, uh, but that, 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 is, that is that is a com- that is a completely different sort of movie. They're yes. often grouped together, but they are not at all alike. Yeah, no, I, because I Death Wish doesn't even concern the psychology of a policeman. Bronson is a private citizen, whatever the yes. hell he is, is an architect or something. <laughs> yeah, no, always he's an architect. Just, yeah, he's always like he's sort of. Uh, almost like a, like a, like a ninja movie or one of those samurai movies where it's like this like common farmer or who gets like, or like almost like the Rambo movies where it's this like common citizen, he gets screwed over and, and he rises up, you know, like because of this horrible injustice and everything he does is, is okay. Right. Because of this. Right. So no, yeah, that is completely different completely different but so magnum magnum force has often been taken as an apology for the first movie and and it's good on its own and i certainly recommend watching it it's not as good a movie as dirty harry if you are but it's very entertaining and you will enjoy it but it's not it's less an apology than just an illustration of another aspect of the same kind of ideal police personality. Which is not mm-hmm. surprising because it was written by the same guy. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, anyway, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been uh, uh, really, really fascinating. And um, I, I... John, it's thank my you pleasure so much. as always. And I just want to leave you with one detail about Dirty Harry, which has always intrigued me and which I think represents the movie very well. What's Clint that? Eastwood was a natural left-hander and you see him doing things left-handed in a lot of movies. In fact, in one of the Dirty Harry sequels, you see him shooting pool left-handed. But like many people his age, he was taught to do things right-handed, even though he was a lefty and he didn't learn how to do that. And in Dirty Harry, as well as all the Dirty Harry movies, he shoots right-handed. 
Yes. But at the very end, when he forsakes the police and tosses his badge into the mine pond, he does it with his left hand. So on the one hand, you have the right, and on the other hand, you have the left. And I think that's an aspect of the movie that I'd like to emphasize that a lot of people overlook when they impute to it their own either political philosophy or the opposite of their own political philosophy. Because in my opinion, it represents neither and stands for neither. It is something else. It is too okay, generous. This, this and if makes, you haven't seen this it, makes go so out much sense. Oh, Aaron, this makes so much sense. Because I remember after I watched the movie, we we were like texting back and forth after I watched it. And the the first thing you asked me, and I thought it was so random, now I understand. You said, uh, is is Harry Callahan right-handed or left-handed? And I said, and I was thinking about that scene at the cross in the park where uh, mm-hmm. Scorpio tells him, throw me your gun. And he reaches with his right hand into, he, he holsters his gun on the left and he pulls it out and throws it to him. And I said, well, he holsters it on the left. So I guess he's right-handed. And then you said to me, your next question on your text was, you said, uh, uh, remember the last scene uh, where he throws away his badge into the, the mine pool. Uh, and mm-hmm. you said like, what does he throw it with? And I, and I had literally like just stopped watching the movie 10 minutes ago. Right. So I, I said, uh, right. and I was picturing it and I was like, Oh fuck. That's his left hand. <laughs> he right. throws it with his left hand. And that is weird because I'm right-handed and I would do both of my rights. Uh, so you see this as being like a very meaningful detail. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, Siegel knew what he was doing. The details in this movie are extremely well thought out. So it may be an accident, but I don't think so. (laughs) All right. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, please come again. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure as always. All right. Take care. Bye-bye now.